difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky. Tasha Robinson cannot be here tonight because she's stranded in the Forbidden Zone. <laughs> on the first half of this episode, we discussed Planet of the Apes, the 1968 science fiction classic that helped make the world safe for movie after movie featuring intelligent apes and their troubled relations with humans. These most recently include Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and the new-ish War for the Planet of the Apes, which traced the ascent of apes from lab experiments to competitors for dominance over the Earth. The film is directed by Matt Reeves, who took over the series from Rupert Wyatt after the first entry. The third film continues a series-long shift away from humanity and toward the apes, where Rise introduced Caesar, the intelligent chimp played in each film by Andy Serkis, and the first wave of intelligent apes, and Don more or less gave equal time to humans and apes, War is told almost entirely from the apes' perspectives. After the explosive finale of Dawn, the apes have attempted to carve out a place to call their own away from humans. But a relentless colonel, played by Woody Harrelson, has other plans. We'll talk about what the film is trying to do, how this chapter fits into the preceding films, and its relationship to the 1968 original after this. To survive. Bad human kill. Ape. All, all dead now. A long time. Long time. Bad humans. It's soldier. Years from now, your children will ask you, what did you do in the greatest war? And you can tell them, I fought to protect this world. We created this. But now... We will bring an end to their kind. No mercy. No peace. This is war. Apes together. Okay, general discussion here. What did you think of War for the Planet of the Apes? I thought it was stunning. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was the strongest and most resonant of the three new ones. It's exquisitely directed, and, and uh, the effects are incredible, and there's a whole lot to think about. I was shocked to the degree to which, and I'm sure we'll get into this, your sympathies lie entirely with uh, the non-humans. And um, I thought it was a great payoff, and and it really kind of leads into watching it with Planet of the Apes and seeing how it kind of leads into it in, in its way. Um, just made it all the better for me. So I I, I just loved it. Yeah, I, I co-sign your general feelings, general feelings on the movie. But as, as far as like how it sets up the '68 Planet of the Apes, I was like spending a lot of time thinking about that because I saw this movie, knowing that we were doing this pairing, and it's like very I think strange in in that respect, like how it 
does set it up versus how it doesn't. But we can get more into that in Connections. But I actually went back to rewatch uh, Rise after seeing War for the Planet of the Apes. And that movie, which I which I also like quite a bit, but I, it's a lot more awkward and stilted in, it, in the way it calls out to the original uh, series. War for the Planet of the Apes, you, you can just feel it becoming a much more assured series over the course of these three movies. And War is definitely the, the apex of that, where it really becomes its own thing, even as it is simultaneously informing this vast franchise. Yeah, I, I feel like Matt Reed's kind of snuck in through the back door to become uh, a really interesting director of, of big films. I mean, he did Cloverfield, but he didn't really necessarily get the credit for Cloverfield. Mm. Um, and he let did me in, right? Let Me In, the, the remake mm. of, of Let the Right One In, which I, I liked quite a bit. I mean, it is very faithful to the original, which was the main criticism of it at the time. But it, I think it works quite well. And, and I think there's the moments that it diverges from it are, are kind of, you get a glimpse of, of, the, of the stylist he'd become with these apes films. And, and uh, yeah, this is quite good. I think I like the second one a little better. Because I, I love the balance it strikes between the worlds of, the, of of apes and worlds of humans, uh, but this is, this is quite a, a quite a remarkable film. I, I was I was very pleased with it. It's bold, though. I mean, it's bold to not strike that balance. Yeah, and and bold and kind of inevitable. We've been heading that in that direction through the whole through the whole series. And it's it's just drawing from a lot of different, I think, cinematic traditions. I mean, obviously. We've been doing a lot of war movies lately, guys. Yeah, yeah we'll do another one uh, next time. We'll, right? We'll, 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 yeah, so yes. there's a lot of them. But I mean, you know, obviously it directly references Apocalypse Now, but it's also like there's a interview with Reeves on Entertainment Weekly where he kind of talks about the different films he watched as, you know, inspiration for these, like not as like a direct inspiration so much as what he characterizes as creating a vibe for the film. And he calls out Bridge on the River Kwai, mm-hmm. which I think is very apparent, uh, The Great Escape, all also very apparent but he also notes uh, biblical epics which i think like this is a very strong exodus story um, yes. in, in in a lot of ways and i think that kind of functions as a metaphor and allegory that can be applied to a lot of different contemporary issues so i think that's a very smart approach on the filmmaker's part and you know it's also informed by the planet of the apes series <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I think uh, also you know Apocalypse Now mm-hmm. is a pretty big mm-hmm. uh, influence in Full Metal Jacket as well. Both of the, both of those films um, are referenced pretty directly. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, oh. it lays on the biblical references and the Apocalypse Now references very heavily, but it feels earned. It feels like we at this point in the series that that it can bear that kind of weight. Yeah, uh, one other reference point he mentions, which I'm not super familiar with, but I think you two will react to, is the outlaw Josie Wales. Okay. okay. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. In that western, the general, last kind of shot, the snowscape. Western, yeah, yeah. The last shot of the film is from some western. I can't remember. It has to be right. I mean, that to me is like very much the the Exodus. Not maybe I'm just thinking of the image of it of it kind of like it's a little Shane craning up. It's a little and, Shane, like a little Shane doesn't crane up, but just just having the yeah. You know, it feels like there's a John Ford film that is it my, maybe my darling Clementine or something that has a shot like that, but. Um, in any case, Matt Reeves knows his yeah. cinema so, pretty yeah, well. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because you have sort of the the three kind of big pillars of classic studio filmmaking. You have war movies, you have westerns, mm-hmm. and you have uh, biblical epics. You know, and they're all kind of converging to inform this film. That is true, and a uh, science fiction film. And and you have, I mean, what's surprising to me about 
the movie is how much Koba's notion of, of humanity and how the world works is is the prevailing one, is the one that mm-hmm. the film lands on. And that's a really bold, because Koba's presented as villainous. Villain, yeah. And uh, that changes in this movie. And I think it's, again, it's just so surprising. I just, when you're in the middle of a, a summer <laughs> when movies play it so safe to be given a movie like this, which would potentially in, in, endorse um, or prop up the point of view of, of a villain from the previous film, and, and that would align itself against humanity. I mean, that's that's a huge gamble and uh, pays off. Huge. It, it's it's basically making an X Men movie in which Magneto is right, which is kind of what Logan was. Yeah, in, I guess in some that's ways. true. But I, but, I mean, it's it's been. I don't know. I, I think this and and as long as we're talking about Logan, Logan as well are an example of how you can I don't know you can make a blockbuster that's got a personal vision to it that doesn't conform to you know that doesn't check off all the boxes and audiences will still go to it this was a hit kind of like planet of the apes in 1968 the secret is always put in talking apes that's that's what you mean. <laughs> yeah it gets people thinking so here's my question because it's I don't think it's often that we talk about a second sequel as a, as a standalone uh, film on, on this podcast. So I'm I'm curious, uh, how do you guys think this movie stands apart from the two movies before it? My memory of the previous two is not, mm-hmm. not as strong as I think it should be, other than remembering James Franco from the first one and remembering Koba from, from this one and kind of having a sense of how Caesar fits into each of those yeah. scenarios. That, that That's what I really remember about the previous Two uh, in comparison with, with this one, I just though I, I you know I will just say broadly that I felt more engaged and, and, and captivated by this one than, than the other two. I forget which one of you said this like literally five minutes ago, but the the idea that the series shifts from having kind of a human sympathizing perspective in Rise to a kind of parody uh, between human and ape perspective in Dawn, and then kind of being fully onto the ape perspective in war does i think serve to give these three films their own distinctive characteristics beyond the larger trilogy i don't know if that was intentional i hope it was because i think it is really effective in making these three movies kind of stand on their own as well as within the larger story that's being told yeah i think they all have a different kind of flavor to them as well Mm -hmm. um the the first one is I don't want to say conventional, but it's definitely you know grounded in our world. And, it's and, an apocalypse story. Yeah, and then the second one is in a post apocalyptic story yeah. in many ways, and this is that as well. But also all the other genres we mentioned before they they're distinctive in their in their way, which is part of what I think makes this an interesting series. Well, but you also enter a, a rebirth or a you know or, or a passageway, a literal passageway to a, a sustainable future away from war, away from all the trouble that these apes have had to go through in these these uh, first two movies. Yeah, and it felt like a, there's. I think they're leaving the door open in interviews to doing more films, but this is definitely the end of this trilogy, and, and it's a nice progression. And, and it's ultimately, you know, pull back and look at a big picture. It's, it's Caesar's story that's being told, mm-hmm. and, and we get that from beginning to end in a really satisfying way with these three films. Yeah, I think Caesar is going to go down in film history as one of, like, the great characters. You know, just, I, I mean, I think... Andy Serkis's performance is a, a huge part of that, but also the fact that he does have such a distinctive and well-drawn arc through these three films. It's interesting to have a, a non-human character kind of 
potentially stand that tall in the film canon. And I, I think it may be as far as we've seen, as complex a character as we've seen, that has been that effect reliant right you know if any circus walks down the street nobody knows who he is but it's starting um, to change yeah <laughs> i mean he's, he's he's done enough promotion for these films yeah maybe you know maybe at, so. at this but point not, they wouldn't have it's, this. Hey, look it's the editor from 13 going on 30 though, though I, I, I will say as great as great i mean any circus is fantastic in this movie but boy steve's on how great is Steve Zahn? Yeah, got to talk about, about yeah. Bad Ape. Uh-huh. I actually, um, I, I only vaguely Googled for this um, and, and couldn't find any clear answers, but was Steve Zahn doing the motion capture for, yeah. for Bad Ape, including the, the movement and stuff as I, well? I believe so, yeah. Okay, all right. It was, it was like circus, a full motion okay. capture performance. Good, yeah, because I Bad Ape is amazing, and oh, I, oh. I would have been sad if that wasn't the case. So, And you just need him so much. It's such a grim movie to have... Steve's on pop in there and give you a little bit of comic r- relief and a little bit of play. But also, makes um, a big difference. also pathos. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, a traumatized it, it, character. Yeah. And, and also like this deep into the story, it, I think it's really smart to introduce a different kind of ape, an ape who is separate from Caesar's or Koba's factions of, of apes, you know, it suggests a bigger world beyond this, you know, little sliver of the Pacific Northwest or West Coast. Let's just say sure. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) They started in San Francisco and they worked their way north. So yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know what? He's really not such a bad ape. He's not. I I would go so far as to call him a good ape. Yeah. But he has the the blue vest that I think kind of calls back to the costuming of the the gorillas in the original franchise. (laughs) Am am I imagining that? No, no, that's right. And then we get, of course, we get Nova uh, all over again. The woman who can't speak girl in this case. But yes. Is Maurice called Maurice because of uh, Maurice Evans? Maurice yeah, Evans, in yeah. the first film, there's a lot of a lot of naming after after people. In yeah, the production. I didn't realize until now that she actually was is Nova. That's, mm-hmm. Huh, <laughs> that's interesting. But she's named after the car. <laughs> yeah, she is. She is. Well, I mean, who, what? Boy, that, that I, it gives you a lot to think about, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, like I was thinking about like what, how are we supposed to <laughs> see the, the continuity of this? In I, it doesn't work because it, it basically it would make sense if the original Planet of the Apes took place like ten years after after the action of this instead of a thousand years or however many it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, the the big thing is that Caesar's son is named Cornelius, and right. and there's a character named Caesar in the original uh, series too. So like it was Cornelius' son. Yeah. So like there's a some confusion there as far as like the lineage goes, but I think. You know, if you just take it to be like ape society or like human society where like people are named after ancestors, you know, and names are handed down, you know, but this is not the... Or, or not straying too hard to make that make the yeah. connection there. Right, right. But like because I I saw War before revisiting the 1968 original, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves, but I, I did spend a lot of time wondering if the Cornelius in War was supposed to be the Cornelius in the 1968 Planet of the Apes, and that was like a little distracting to the point that like I kind of wish they hadn't done that. Mm. But that's a minor complaint. I think it's probably to the new film's favor that they're not prequels. They don't try to be prequels because as an audience member, you end up anticipating all these events happening. Like when is when is humanity going to have? <laughs> when are they going to nuke each other? And uh, how is this? Uh, you know, this way you can be surprised. Uh, by how things go and not be just sitting there just wondering what the origin of everything is. I have a minor complaint too. And Don, I thought it was like, oh, wow, that's Judy Greer, but she doesn't really have much to do. Well, 
okay, must maybe her scene got cut, and then she, like in this one, it's like, oh, good, Judy Greer's in this one. Oh, <laughs> doesn't she doesn't really last all that yeah. long? Yeah, I mean, for all it does well, this series as well as you know the the series that inspired it does you know not have a a wealth of great female characters. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that is uh, a generous way of putting yeah. it. Yeah, but it succeeds in other respects. Well, as long as we're talking about the 68 one, maybe we should move on to Connections, which we will do after this. Have you finally come to save your apes? I can't bring you. For me. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about the things they have in common. You know, may as well start with by talking about apes. Like, how are the apes in this different from the apes in the original Planet of the Apes? I think the apes in War are a little more realistic than those of the original. <laughs> <laughs> if realism is the main quality you're looking for in your uh, in your ape effects, but they they both have their charms. Well, I mean, we could talk more generally about mocap performances versus you know mask acting or mm-hmm. make, make acting through makeup. I, I like both, and I, I think the looking at them side by side, you can kind of see the advantages to each. Right. You wouldn't call it dated, Keith? Would call no, it dated? I would not. I would not would call it dated. dated. Be no, I, love, I love the original effects. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what I what I love about what these recent Apes movies have done with the effects from Weta is that they have taken motion capture and computer generated imagery to the point that actors can act through it the way that actors can act through makeup. That wasn't always the case. That wasn't the case 10 years ago. I mean, there's really just no barrier here between us and how, and the audience and how we think or how we connect or feel with these characters on screen. I mean, there's not, you know, whereas, I mean, you just expect that with any, any effect, there's going to be that, that wall and, and certainly a facial effect, um, you know, or a character who's an an ape, um, just such a full range of emotion, uh, all the emotion you would expect from a human being, um, you know, turns up on, you know, Caesar's face, for example. Um, I don't feel like there's any barrier at all. I think it's, it's notable that both ape effects, both the makeup effects in the original and the motion capture effects here leave the eyes pretty much unimpeded. Like you are Mm -hmm. seeing more or less the actor's eyes, you know, it's such a cliche that, you know, the eyes are such a huge part of the performance, but they really are, especially in Caesar's, uh, performance their window into the soul yeah I thought that was the cliche you were going to mention <laughs> it was but it was cliche so i didn't want to say okay. it okay <laughs> so, I'll, I'll take the i'll take the hit but yeah there is a comment in there about caesar's eyes being so human and him more than any of the other mocap apes in in this series has very expressive human eyes 
um, which certainly contributes to his characterization. The other difference too is that you know the apes are being attacked in, in this film in a very violent way, and I, and there's something still more disturbing about it than than if there were humans being shot. There's something just you, we we at that point can see them as helpless animals. Yeah, it's a way that that you know your heart kind of goes out when when an animal's put in jeopardy and, mm-hmm. in film. It's in a way it doesn't necessarily go out when there doesn't always go out when there's a human in jeopardy, and and this is like kind of that writ writ large, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it can turn that quickly from seeing them as having the emotional range of a human, human being to seeing them as, as poor defenseless animals who are getting shot. I think the movie plays with that a little bit too, because at the end you just get these sort of these throngs of of humans that you know indistinguishable from one another, just a massive you know, the army invasion, and they're they're it's it's almost more like a force of nature than actual individual people doing it. And whereas the apes are always you know very you know, set apart and, and independent characters at that point. I want to talk about. Apes on horseback <laughs> because i i think like that is such an, an interesting visual throughout this series of apes riding on horses and I, I remember i think we saw it for the first time in this newer series in dawn i believe so yeah, yeah. and just the way that that reveal happened like the way you see apes on horseback for the first time it's just like it's such a very kind of stirring and unusual image to have a, an ape on the back of a horse. Yeah, it, it upends our perceptions of what you know where they are in the in the animal in, in yeah. the animal hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. Mm, yeah. And and I mean the '68 original also has apes on horseback, but it's much more kind of matter of fact the way it's it's introduced. Like it's how the apes are introduced. Like the first That's time true. we see them is on horseback. Well, I mean, domesticating and subjugating animals are one of the things that define right. what humans are. And suddenly we have somebody else doing that yeah so i guess like you know putting this newer series in the context of prequels like it makes sense that we are seeing the moment where that happens whereas in the 68 original like it's just it's part of the society but um that is like a very powerful moment that always stuck out to me in dawn is the first time we see the apes on horseback and the first time we see them shooting a gun for that matter like you said it kind of upends our perceptions of what animals and beasts are are yeah and it also brings us into the western as well Mm, right to have them to have them on horseback and also i guess like the first a a rejection or a retreat maybe by necessity from a technologically based society into a more quote-unquote natural way of doing things still got the guns though they do have the guns. Well, they, I guess it's uh, so grenades. by necessity. <laughs> I, I guess I would explain that, but uh, there doesn't. I don't think there's any uh, rush to um, for any of them to be developing. You know, a car pa- like a Palo. <laughs> you know, there's not a Palo Alto kind of vibe to the place, despite its location. We should um, talk about audiences 1968 versus audience in 2017, and I think you, you could be like Don Draper and, and be surprised by what you'd seen and and this one and. and these series had to pay play to 21st century audiences that had already, you know, knew the tricks of, of the original Planet of the Apes. And and uh, how do you think these films give an audience like that something they haven't seen before? I mean, part of it's come from the effects, which we've already yeah. talked about. Yeah, I think it's maybe just like situating it within the blockbuster model, mm-hmm. which the 68 uh, original and I assume the, the latter films aren't really in because the blockbuster model didn't really exist uh, no i mean they're kind of like pre-blockbuster blockbusters yeah a little bit. yeah but they seem to almost like function more in the cult film realm even though it was a huge hit but just in terms of the 
I don't know, the vibe of it, to go back to the vibe, <laughs> which is a very technical uh, film critic term that I'm using. <laughs> yeah, in the late 60s, it applies. I yeah, think. right? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there have been many people who have called uh, War for the Planet of the Apes like the best blockbuster of the summer. And, you know, you can certainly argue that, but I think it is definitely a paragon of modern blockbusters. So I think the fact that it is like bringing what appeal to 1968 audiences into a format that appeals to 2017 audiences, you know, maybe a, a big part of its success. I wonder to a degree how, you know, I mean, when we talked about Planet of the Apes, we talked about all of these themes that come out of it, you know, the, of themes of race and of, you know, science and reason and all of the Cold War. It's like like all of these things are associated with it. There's so much to chew on there. Is there as much with these movies or with War of the Planet of the Apes? I think so. I think it's a little more under the surface. But in the first one, you get into the issue of animal rights and and experimentation. Mm -hmm. The second one, it's more like about a hot zone, more about like how do you share space with a warring with your enemy? How, Uh how How do these warring factions that have that will never be fully reconciled live together or or not as as the case might be and this one i think you get into prison camps and you get into sort of images of refugees mm-hmm. and and uh this is a a people who are trying to escape oppression and find a carve out a land for themselves and and you don't really have a charlton heston telling you this is what this is about uh at any point but i think that stuff is is there you don't have to dig very far to get to it yeah and i, I think i guess at the end too you have um it, this was what it shares with Planet of the apes as well is just uh wh- where are we at in terms of humanity like where do we stand who represents us and who which is in this case, you know, Woody Harrelson's colonel. And that's a pretty disturbing, you know, given his connection to um, perhaps Kurtz and uh, Apocalypse Now, or um, actually he'd be more in common with uh, Robert Duvall even in Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now. Either, either, either way, not humanity's uh, shining moment. I mean, it's some, some great imagery. It's some great, like, fascist imagery of him, like, shaving his head in front of the troops. That's, that's, some, yeah. that's some chilling stuff. Yeah, I, um, I want to give a shout-out to my, my co-worker, Alyssa Wilkinson, who is uh, the movie critic at Vox.com, and her uh, Planet of the Apes, War for the Planet of the Apes review, which is very, very good. But she specifically talks about how the movie evokes at least four different historical periods of oppression. It evokes not just the children of Israel and Egyptian enslavement, but also movements that have used that story as inspiration for their own struggle for freedom during the American Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. It also consciously calls to mind the Holocaust with homages to the Great Escape and soldiers styled to look like both Nazis and white supremacist militants. So, so I guess you can. <laughs> yeah. So, th- so that's kind of what I was thinking of in, in the first uh, half. I, I kind of alluded to the fact that there's like a lot of different readings that you can attach to War for the Planet of the Apes, but they're all kind of born of this greater story of oppression that can be applied to many, many different points in history because humans keep oppressing each other, which was the theme of the original. So there we go. Brings it full circle. Are there more like you? More apes from zoo? Dead. All dead. Long time. Human gets sick. Ape get smart then human kill ape but not me I run you learn to speak listen human bad ape bad ape 
I wanted to talk a little bit about who we are being asked to identify with in these two films in terms of not necessarily who we are sympathizing with, because I don't think you necessarily need to sympathize with a character in a movie, but in terms of like whose quote unquote side we're on. And we talked a little about it in the first half with the 68 apes and just in terms of like the ambiguity of the ending and of what Dr. Zayas is doing. But, you know, we are really on the side of the apes for most of war. But then there's the fate of the humans, you know, and the virus that is the part of war that most explicitly sets up the world of the 68 apes, the mutation of the virus that robs humans of their speech and kind of makes them regress to a more animal state. And that final scene with Woody Harrelson's character where he kills himself rather than regress to that is, I think, really powerful and unsettling and and similar to the way the ending of 68 Apes sort of upends your perceptions of right and wrong. That final scene with Harrelson functions in a somewhat similar way. Am I, am I no, imagining that? No, no, you're, that? you can't help but feel for him and, yeah. and kind of, you know, the his vulnerability and, 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 you know, it doesn't excuse what he's done, but you kind of see what he's, what he thinks he's fighting against the entire time. It's not an irrational thing to want to fight for, I don't Mm -hmm. want to say for your race, but I want, but to fight for, for your existence as a species, I think is a, would be a, a natural impulse and not, not something that we would be inclined as humans to villainize if it's humans that are indeed under threat, right? There's an element of madness to what he's doing, too, because this is a man who has had to kill his child. That unhinges a person, you know? And like I said, I don't want to say it causes you to sympathize with him, but it does add shading to what would otherwise be a pretty standard villain. So I guess I'm asking you guys, like, who you identify with in these movies as a viewer. Well, in this film, I think almost entirely the apes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what about Nova? Sure. She seems nice. I mean, obviously I'm not a little girl. Yeah. can't talk, but like she, she is, there's something redeemable there and maybe a sign that perhaps it was not a, uh, the right decision for uh, the Colonel to kill his child. Yeah. It, it's unclear to me also whether they're just losing speech or losing cognitive faculties because mm-hmm. she seems to be as intelligent as, as any girl her age uh, and she just can't talk but it, it seems it, like it, people it, who get these disease later kind of regress if i'm maybe not... or it could just be like that is something that uh the colonel like assumed mm-hmm. because if you can't speak then you're obviously a beast you know mm-hmm. it may have been just like a false extrapolation on his part yeah i mean is that this speech uh, the ability to communicate through language uh is it essential to us being human? Obviously, no. Uh, but maybe some people think it is. There's also a couple of, I guess I'll call them gray area characters, whose names I'm struggling to find on IMDb, so I'll just describe them. But there is the human soldier who we see in the opening battle who is communicating with the colonel on the radio, and we kind of come back to him yeah. again and again throughout the camp with the suggestion that he's carrying out orders, but he is uncomfortable with, with what's happening. And then we also have the guerrilla enforcer on the colonel's side who is like I said, uh, an enforcer for most for most of the film, but does have a a moment toward the end, you know, of ape solidarity, I guess. So I think those two characters are interesting mirrors it's of like each don- other. Donkey, right? Is yes. Don- they, well, they, well, they call they all call them they call donkeys. them donkeys, yes. at, which I didn't get at first, and then I got they call them Kongs, mm-hmm. donkey, donkey Kong. Get it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very clever. Okay, that I didn't know that. That's very that is clever. <laughs> I realized that about halfway through the movie. 
but um, I'm just pointing those two characters out as interesting mirrors of each other in that respect. Yeah, and, and the, the donkeys reminded me more of Apocalypse Now when Kurtz is settled in among the natives and they're part of his protection and and uh, are aligned with him in some in some way um despite him in the war intruding upon and violating you know their terrain so there was there's the the apocalypse now connection uh, but it, it led to that such a great pay payoff for uh, one of them to take the action uh, that he does at the end um i guess before we wrap up uh I, I would like to talk about the action in both of these films because i mean war is definitely more in the line of what we would think of as a, a modern action film and having big sequences but uh 68 definitely has some some exciting action sequences awesome. too yeah no i i'm surprised we didn't actually talk about it in that first segment because the scene where um all the humans are on the run and the apes are trying to catch them in nets i mean that's an that's a terrific it's I mean, yeah, <laughs> Franklin Schaffner directs, directs the heck out of that. He does. Um, and imagine, it's another thing where I'd love to be able to time travel and to watch this movie knowing nothing because that's terrifying. You know, that just the, 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 the apes on horseback. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a powerful introduction of that. And, 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 uh, Their nets don't seem to work very well, though. Well, you know, still, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to be caught in one, you know? No. Mm. <laughs> they work eventually. They're relentless. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, like, central stared air like mm-hmm. gallery type area coliseum i don't i don't know what the technical name for it is but it, it really is a great setting for an action sequence for i a think chase scene too. For a cha- and, yeah. and the, the chase where he kind of goes you kind of doubles as a a, a tour of aspects of ape society including mm-hmm. that great ape funeral um oh, yeah. which is uh you know that's a really great sequence too i mean it's not you know there's there's long talky stretches of that film but it's it's definitely it does not skip on the action either yeah, for sure. Or even just the, um, well, what I originally thought was the opening scene until I, I saw the pre-credits prologue of the 68, but the ship crashing, just the way that that is achieved, you know, through mainly through camera movement is, I think, pretty awesome. They have fewer tools that are at, at their disposal, but they, they use them well. I mean, one other bit of trivia with the original is it had its budget and shooting schedule cut drastically at the last minute. So it, it is a matter of, of, uh, of, you know, being resourceful. What about the action in war? It's very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. Are there, are there any like sequences in, in particular that stand out to you? I mean, the two, I mean, there's that first conflict with the humans and that, I think that's the one time, where, where the movie kind of is on their side perspective wise right because they're the ones approaching mm-hmm. the, the apes and try, trying to launch this sneak attack and then mm-hmm. and then it's answered with mm-hmm. extraordinary force and then and then we switch perspectives later which is interesting in itself and then and yeah. then and then the big final battle sequence which takes um a lot of different twists and turns and you got an, an avalanche. avalanche oh my god! should gosh. have seen it coming but i didn't see it coming oh, boy, <laughs> much a... like them in the movie <laughs> <laughs> there's also the middle of the night raid with all those laser sights yeah I think that's really the, the that's laser really through good. the waterfall is a very cool uh moment of what's what's happening here right you know right. Yeah, um it really i mean just it really just straight up delivers the goods as it were which is kind of what it has to do i mean if 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 we're going to talk about these new planet of the apes movies having to work as nine figure blockbuster spectacles um they do that very skillfully and, and well well i think we have also skillfully navigated through this world uh, so let's wrap this up 
Planet of the Apes is available through a variety of sources, including the usual streaming services and on Blu-ray, where it's accompanied by a lot of interesting extras and the fine feature-length documentary from 1998 called Behind the Planet of the Apes, which kind of walks you through the whole original series. Uh, War for the Planet of the Apes is still in theaters. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I'm going to pull a bit of an audible. I was going to recommend Step, which I think you should see if you want to see a crowd-pleasing documentary about steppers in an all-girls Baltimore high school. It's very much in the, you know, the spellbound tradition. It's not groundbreaking documentary filmmaking by any stretch of the imagination you're just kind of following you know a few of the girls and who have you know different very strong and very different personalities but it's super satisfying and, and something that i think you should, should check out and i also wanted of course to make a mention of columbus i had talked about um Koganata's visual uh, you know essay which are incredible um and you should check those out still but um the film columbus is finally being released in art houses so i would check that out just because i have been so frustrated by um how boring aesthetically uh various sundance films i've seen have been lately and columbus you know for all of its faults and some of its amera indie flavor has a beautiful look to it and and it, and it visits this town in indiana that's full of uh you know modernist architecture it's kind of like uh someone talked about it as being like if garden state were directed by ozu <laughs> it would be columbus which is a pretty good comparison yeah second uh, i saw but, that movie today but now it. i'm gonna just completely turn away from all that and uh talk about a film called the lawnmower man <laughs> <laughs> I'm dying to see how this uh, happened. Uh, yeah, so so the lawnmower med. This came up because I was we were doing a list at uh, Rolling Stone. Will be up by the time this airs. Connected to the Dark Tower about adaptations of Stephen King's work, uh, of which the lawnmower man is in name only. Uh, <laughs> Stephen King had uh, sued ha- successfully to have his name removed because the, the his story and the film really have almost nothing in common, uh, but. Uh, for me, if you know me, you know that I absolutely love or I'm fascinated by movies about technology, particularly ones that are super technophobic and uh, and kind of kind of cheesy. And uh, and somehow I had not seen The Lawnmower Man, which which kind of brought me back to the time when I um, did a Better Late Than Never on Harold and Maude. You know, I'd seen you know a hundred films that were Harold and Maude clearly been a direct influence but not as seen harold and motors it's a weird blind spot so i rectified the blind spot today by seeing uh the lawnmower man on shout factory blu-ray and oh my god what an absolutely insane film this is <laughs> it's a film about uh virtual reality and how terrified we should be by it it's a war- warning of this new technology that's coming and is gonna and is gonna introduce you know mind control and you know is going to erase the boundary between the real and the virtual world in a way that's going to be just devastating for human humanity uh and it does it um through 
effects that are uh, again I'm not going to say dated but of their time they, they look no they looked bad at the time I saw this movie in the theater okay was, they these, these bad effects the were, were, were cheesy looking though. yeah and it's just, it's, everything is played so broad it's got Jeff Fahey is the lawnmower man who's a, a simpleton who's recruited by by Pierce Brosnan who's a scientist to uh, be this sort of guinea, human guinea pig for his experience with virtual reality and the experiments um, help expand his cognitive function but it goes too far and so you know this sort of hat half wit turns into a godlike homicidal megalomaniac with the ability to sort of erase the line between the real world and the pixelated realm of uh, possibility terrifying possibility and um you know he does it often you know there's one sequence where you have this giant uh, virtual head of uh, jeff he sort of zapping these cops turning him into like digital pixels and it's just it's so tacky and fascinating wonderful in its way i just think like (laughs) you know it's like the net you know it's just it's such it's this technophobic freak out that we look at today and and think yeah virtual reality i mean we're making jokes about it on silicon valley it's not a threat at all it's still it's still in its in the phase of being a kind of a a fad and nothing threatening at all that was worth revisiting. So, I, so I, it's not a recommendation, but if you share my obsession and somehow haven't seen The Lawnmower Man, it is it was quite something. I will say that. I just remember the phrase "access denied" being used uh, yes. an awful lot. Yeah, because he gets trapped in the, a virtual realm and he cannot get out because his access is denied <laughs> many, many times. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that that's my weird little rant about The Lawnmower Man. Keith, what about you? I want to recommend that people go a little deeper into the world of Planet of the Apes and watch the um, sequels to the original film, which I find really quite compelling, uh, some more than others. But if you kind of want to know where this current trilogy comes from, there are, a lot of them are drawn from later Planet of the Apes sequels. But just to walk you through it a little bit, um, there's going to be some spoilers here. The next movie is called Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which basically ends – it's not that great – until the end, which actually ends with the discovery of this of these humans who are mutant who are worshiping a nuclear weapon, and the film ends with the earth being destroyed this <laughs> is the most amazing you know apocalypse well literally apocalypse they blow again. it up they blow it the up maniacs. they blow it up but fortunately <laughs> some apes travel back in time our, our, our friends Cornelius and Zira and uh, another ape played by Salminio uh, travel back in time thus starting the whole cycle again so you get escape from the planet of the apes conquest of the planet of the apes and battle for the planet of the apes and of those I would say the best is Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, which really is the most um, has the most in common with this current trilogy, and it's very much a rooted in, in, in the civil rights struggle and kind of imagines this world in which the apes you know rebel against their human masters, for which they've become sort of uh, you know subhuman slaves. And it's it's not subtle, but it's very effective. I, I like that one a lot, and probably avoid Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which is not not so good. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're all written by a man named or co-written by a man named. Um, uh, Paul Dane, who's definitely someone who I'd love to read a full biography of because he was a film critic and also apparently a spy in World War II. I, I, I keep thinking that maybe Michael Fassbender's character in Inglorious Bastards was, was, was somewhat inspired by mm-hmm. Paul Dane. He's also, um, I don't know, 
open in the sense that that you know that he was walking down the street holding hands, but he was in a relationship with a man for years, and 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 everyone knew about it. He wrote a film uh, called uh, Goldfinger, which uh, which I think you might <laughs> like. But and then um, he also wrote a, a collection of poetry called Quake Quake Quake, which was illustrations by Edward Gorey, including the cover, which features a couple picnicking in front of a, a mushroom cloud. So there's sort of a, a dark sensibility to the, to to his writing throughout, and it really comes through in those sequels. And I would I would definitely recommend checking them out. So quick ranking. Best, best to worst? Um, the original is the best. Conquest is the second. Um, I'd say Escape's third. Beneath is next to last. And then and Battle for the Planet of the Apes is, is a distant last. You know, <laughs> apart from John Huston as the lawgiver, we actually meet the lawgiver, and he's played by John Huston. Um, and it's got Paul Williams in it, too. But other than that, not so great. How about you, Genevieve? This is not my uh, original recommendation, but I am going to tag a little one on here uh, and recommend something that Keith is far too modest to recommend himself. But I think we probably have some listeners who are not familiar with The Dissolve, the old website we all worked for, and therefore not familiar with the great column that Keith wrote there called The Laser Age, which examined a rich period in history of science fiction filmmaking that began in the late 1960s and faded away by the mid-1980s. So obviously, Planet of the Apes falls directly into that era and um, was inspiration for a couple columns uh, you, you wrote there, including one called After Blowing Itself Up, the Planet of the Apes series charted new territory, which I think probably expands on, on what you talk about in your recommendation right there. So if you haven't uh, had the pleasure of reading the Laser Age column, I would definitely give that a Google and treat yourself to that. But that is uh, not my main recommendation, which is a film called Contemporary Color. Mm. Uh, This is a concert documentary from the Ross brothers, Bill and Turner Ross, uh, which captures a very unusual performance masterminded by one David Byrne, whom we recently discussed on this podcast in the context of Stop Making Sense. Uh, Contemporary Color was the name of a live show that Byrne curated in 2015 that features 10 different contemporary musical artists, including St. Vincent, Nelly Furtado, Tuneyards, Deb Hines, and Byrne himself performing new original songs, but with a twist. See, it turns out that Byrne is an aficionado of Color Guard, the marching band offshoot that's colloquially known as the sport of the arts and features twirling flags, sabers, and other props integrated into contemporary dance routines. So contemporary color is his attempt to elevate color guards perception into in the wider culture by pairing 10 different color guard teams from across the country with 10 musicians for an evening of pure artistic spectacle. And it is nothing short of awesome. I am officially obsessed with this movie. (laughs) The Ross Brothers probably could have gotten away with just kind of pointing some cameras at the stage and still gotten a pretty great movie out of the deal. But they really go a step beyond with the way that they document this concert cutting between more conventional performance and backstage footage to stuff with the teams rehearsing and interacting with each other. And they just do it in really kind of thoughtful and beautiful ways. There's a story being told here, but it's also just kind of the creation of a feeling, sort of telegraphing the passion and excitement these people have around this really niche, uh, sort of campy, but really affecting performing art. It's just kind of a perfect marriage of artistic sensibilities and even if you're like what color guard why would i ever watch that uh i'd strongly recommend uh giving this a shot anyway just to marvel at the filmmaking and the artistic collaboration on display uh it's currently available for digital rental on a variety of services i rented it on amazon and it's more than worth the three or four dollars you'll spend to, to watch it. it i cannot believe i've I'm, I'm, this film i'm personally offended you haven't seen it's it embarrassing yet because I, I i keep touting the Ross Brothers is is I think they're I think at the end of their 
run, they're going to be thought of like the Maisels are now. I think they're that talented. They did they did the film a film called Western. Uh, I can't remember the name of the. I don't know how to pronounce the name of that uh, New Orleans street. Uh, Chalpatulas or uh, Chupatulas. Chupatulas, which is a sort of a night in the life of uh, New Orleans. They are massively talented in some. It is not surprising at all to me that they bring a lot to contemporary color. I also wanted to pile on to Genevieve's other recommendation. You know, you should check out Keith's oh, column. Oh, guys. But, but, but for t- a couple of things. One, we did get a couple of illustrations uh, out of our friend Sam Smith. Yes. Uh, that were fantastic. One of which is still my, my Twitter icon. And, uh, and the other, I wanted to cite one of my favorite columns that he did, uh, which is about a trio of films in 1978 that uh, rushed to feed the craze for science fiction, films such as Laser Blast and <laughs> Message from Space. And it's, just, it's just a great kind of footnote type column that uh, I, I had a lot of fun with. So it's a nice journey to go on, I think. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I miss writing that column. I would pick it up if anyone wanted to, to, to do a book project with it. I'm not saying I would say no. Yeah, yeah I'm, glad, I'm glad people liked it so much. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out August 22nd and 24th. Scott, what do we have lined up? Well, uh, over their last three films, The Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, and their latest, uh, Detroit, writer Mark Boll and director Catherine Bigelow have been refining an approach to real historical events that combines scrupulous, documentary-like attention to detail with a visceral charge of a political thriller. We looked at several great options to pair with Detroit, which follows the events surrounding the 1967 riots in that city. We considered Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee's touchstone about racial tension and violence in New York's Bed-Stuy neighborhood. We also considered Bigelow's Strange Days, which was produced in the wake of the Rodney King trial and reflects on many of the same themes. But we ultimately decided to choose the Battle of Algiers, Gillo Pontecorvo's controversial masterpiece about terrorism and torture in the French-Algerian War. The Battle of Algiers set the standard for what Bull and Bigelow are trying to accomplish in Detroit, and it's always been a great conversation piece. If you haven't seen it, and you really should, it's available on Criterion and on the Filmstruck streaming service. It's also available for digital rental. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of the Planet of the Apes films and anything else film or ape-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave us a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? You can find me at Vox.com at the culture section there, and I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? I'm on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, uh, Vulture, Variety, um, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor of the Oscilloscope Musings blog. Oscilloscope was a distributor of Contemporary Color. I thought they were. You can find our absent co-host, Tasha Robinson, on Twitter at at Tasha Robinson, and you can find her um, all over the place at The Verge, where she works as a film and TV editor. And that's also my title. Uh, I'm film and TV edit- editorial director at uprocks.com, and you can find me on Twitter at kfips3000. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. 
Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space at her home, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. <laughs> the next picture show is proud to be a part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Yeah.